Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Physical Attraction is a podcast about physics, science, and technology. We are time travelers, jumping from the distant past to the distant future. From the life of Isaac Newton to the ways the world might end. And from the lives of quarks to the life cycle of neutron stars. No subject is too big or too small. We interview scientists, authors, activists, and historians, and there's been a special focus on Russia-related issues. We interviewed the author of Stalin and the Scientist, Simon Ings, about science in the Soviet Union, and had several episodes about the atomic bomb. Subscribe to Physical Attraction on iTunes, or visit the website at www.physicspodcast.com. Additionally, Physical Attraction has a sister podcast, Autocracy Now, about historical dictators, which is currently in an epic series on the life of Stalin. You can find that show at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Eastern Border. We're returning to our best friend, Comrade Stalin. And in this episode, we'll look at the beginning of the truly cult-like worship of Lenin, which is created by our favorite man of steel, and, you know, later usurped accordingly. I won't be going into the final struggles between Lenin and Stalin here. However, as I covered the events surrounding uh, the death of the OG Bolshevik in his own series, and we really have to move on in the time frame, and look at the big picture things. And, as usual... Well, do some neat explanation and tangents so that it all makes sense. Which is why it is kind of ironic that I want to start with a very specific event that happened in 1924 and was just 16 minutes long. You see, it's the 26th of January, 1924. From 8 p.m. 24 minutes to 8 p.m. 40 minutes, Stalin is giving speech at the Second All-Union Congress of Soviets, dedicated to the memory of Lenin. And here's a fragment of it. Comrades, we communists are a people of a special mold. We are made of a special stuff. We are those who form the army of the great proletarian strategist, the army of Comrade Lenin. There is nothing bigger than the honor of belonging to this army. There is nothing higher than the title of a member of the party whose founder and leader was Comrade Lenin. It is not given to everyone to be a member of such a party. It is the sons of the working class, the sons of want and struggle, the sons of incredible privation and the heroic effort, who, before all, should be members of such a party. That is why the party of the Leninists, the party of the communists, is also called the party of the working class. And this is like in completely all caps. 
departing from us, Comrade Lenin enjoyed us to the whole high and guard the purity of the great title of the member of the party. We vow to you, Comrade Lenin, we shall fulfill your behest with honor. For 25 years, Comrade Lenin tended our party and made it into the strongest and most highly steeled workers' party in the world. The blows of Tsarism and its henchmen, the fury of the bourgeoisie and landlords, the armed attacks of Kolchak and Denikin, the armed intervention of Britain and France, the lies and slanders of the hundred-mouthed bourgeoisie press. All these scorpions constantly chastised our party for a quarter of a century. But our party stood firm as a rock, repelling the countless blows of its enemies and leading the working class forward to victory. In fierce times, our party forged the unity and solidarity of its ranks. And by unity and solidarity, it achieved victory over the enemies of the working class. Departing from us, Comrade Lenin enjoyed us to guard the unity of our party as the apple of our eye. We vow to you, Comrade Lenin, that this behest we too shall fulfill with honor. As you can hear, uh, this speech has like this full ring of complete mature Stalinism. It's like massive, ritualistic. Yet if you know with their conflicts about Lenin, it's also a vague, crude parody, creaking with vulgarity and kind of imitation of its ecclesiastic models, I guess, which Stalin must have learned in the seminary. Well, even though he wasn't the best of students, obviously. You see, this speech established the celebration of Lenin that has well been properly termed a cult. This is the very beginning of this cult, and uh, although some people, especially Montefiore and other people around there, more tendentious uh, historians, would like to explain this as some sort of trace of Russian religion continuing on, and some, you know, inherent spirituality of the people, I don't think so, personally. I think this is an example of a kind of a mass propaganda, which was made possible back then by mass developments in the media and the rise of literacy. Which is why the rise of literacy is what we'll be speaking about later. The cult, the whole cult, began with a series of decrees. The anniversary of Lenin's death was to be a day of mourning. Petrograd was rechristened Leningrad. Editions of Lenin's work would be published in a multitude of languages. Finally, in keeping with the increasingly patriotic style of public life, as you have probably heard, or, you know, some of you might have even visited, well, <laughs> rather than have Lenin cremated, as earlier leaders had been, obviously, this is why Lenin has been put in the mausoleum. Now, obviously, this cult was not the work of one man. It was kind of this appeal to masses of the party and to leaders. And the notion of the sanctity and infallibility of this Lenin founder derived kind of naturally from Bolshevik conceptions of ideological correctness. They were right, and no one else was even close to being right. Everyone else was just, well, <clears throat> not communist. However, Stalin played a major role in both its creation and how it turned out, and the treatment that it accorded Lenin must have appealed to his, well, Georgian sense of humor. As you remember, well, maybe don't, so I'll remind you anyways, despite his early loyalty to Lenin, for the last two or three years of his life, Ilyich had been an enemy, and Stalin loved to exploit his enemies. He was really the man behind man at all times, as, you know, he liked to ascribe his own crimes to his victims. And yeah... As the only man with the power to actually destroy him, Lenin had become the greatest threat of all. And now, Stalin took exceptional delight in putting his satisfactory dead opponent, well, to good use. And for all that's worth, from the book of George R. Urban, we can hear the Bajanovs, another fellow communist's actual view of Lenin. Quote, I could easily see through the false and hypocritical celebration of Lenin, the genius, which the ruling group indulged in to turn Lenin into an icon and govern in his name as loyal disciples and heirs. I saw straight through Stalin swearing public oaths of loyalty to his genius mentor and actually sincerely hating Lenin because Lenin had become the major obstacle on his road to power. 
Stalin did not bother to pretend in four of his secretaries, and I could clearly tell from individual remarks, phrases, tone of voice, what he really thought of Lenin. And as for his reaction to Lenin's death, quote, Stalin was jubilant. I never saw him in a happier mood than during the days following Lenin's death. He was pacing up and down the office with satisfaction written all over his face. And yeah, Stalin's kind of self-appointed role as Lenin's number one disciple and eventual successor required him to be the interpreter of his master's work. If Stalin was to lead the Bolshevik party, he had to demonstrate that he, too, was a master of ideology. Well, at least of some sorts. So important was the role of ideology that Stalin even got a private tutor to teach him, one Jan Sten. A leading Marxist philosopher gave him a bi-weekly tutorials in which the unlikely couple devoted themselves to the study of Marx's Das Kapital and, you know, Hegel's Phenomenology of the Mind, because Hegel's dialectics are important in Marxist philosophy. The notion of, like, Stalin working over one of the densest works of Western philosophy, this Phenomenology of the Mind is really huge, is just crazy, in a way, if you think about it. Sten spoke to a friend about the, quote, the difficulties he was having due to his pupil's inability to master the material of Hegelian dialectics. Jan often dropped in to see me after a lesson with Stalin in a depressed and gloomy condition. The meetings with Stalin, the conversations with him on matters philosophical, opened his eyes more and more to Stalin's true nature, his striving for one-man rule, his crafty schemes, and methods for putting them into effect. Interestingly, Jan Sten also focused on his pupil's anti-Semitism, fully expecting him in due course to mount trials of Jews that will, quote, put the trials of Dreyfus and Baylis in the shade. And yeah, Stalin obviously does not disappoint and delivers. He didn't really forget his old tutor in later years, and Jan Sten was shot on 19th June 1937. Well, because obviously. Significantly, Stalin's first major excursion into ideology, Foundations of Leninism, is dedicated to, quote, his people. The young generation his machine has just brought into the party. It consisted of some lectures he gave at the Sverdlovsk University, College for Central Committee Officials. And, you know, they provide a kind of an overview of Lenin's ideas, characterizing Leninism as a Marxism of the phase of imperialism and proletariat revolution. His account emphasized political strategy and tactics and the contrast between objective and subjective. Although both this and a military strain are present in Lenin's thought, Stalin's account brought them to the foreground. Stalin also stated that the fundamental concern of Leninism was not the need to win peasants of the proletarian cause, but rather kind of this mix between this, the creation and consolidation of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Any need to preserve some sort of peasant allegiance, which again we've spoke about in the NEP episode, was kind of a secondary concern and one which Stalin would kind of solve in a different way. Uh, spoilers, collectivization. And yeah, it kind of might seem curious that it should have been Stalin, by no means the party's most distinguished thinker, who produced the first, indeed kind of definitive, study of Leninism. In fact, it was kind of a masterly piece of opportunism which exploited kind of the vanity of uh, <clears throat> quote-unquote finer minds, as Alex de Jong would put it. See, the other leaders would have considered beneath them to study Lenin. They were original thinkers and did not need Lenin's help to study Marx. For example, one Professor Yazanov, Russia's leading authority on Marxism, wrote, quote, I am not prepared to call myself a Leninist. I am a Marxist. Stalin obviously subsequently shot Professor Yazanov. Because, well, why not? And now we get to more interesting parts. See, Bajanov, one of his, like, secretaries, has maintained that Stalin, who was literally incapable of expressing any thought requiring more than, like, five minutes of attention, made extensive use of ghostwriters and, well, maybe even ghost thinkers, because he had done that before in his speech about the nationalistic question, because Stalin was a man of action, man of planning, and man of organization, and he wasn't very well tended to, you know, figuring out more literally metaphors. 
Research assistants were like certainly responsible for his familiarity with Lenin's every word and elegance with which the material is deployed. However, the writing has a consistency that runs through every word Stalin ever published. Just by a kind of average literary standard, Stalin was in general an awful writer, and I own his compiled works. They're not actually that fun to read, mind you. He has like a clumsy style of an autodidact. He repeats things, and you know, in some of his works, especially when it comes to Constitution, yeah, uh, well, I didn't count, but this was done for me. Thank you, other Soviet scholars. He repeats the word constitution and constitutional 14 times in 135 words for one. So, Stalin had difficulties with written Russian even at some point. He always spoke with a thick Georgian accent. And yeah, he couldn't cope with two of its characteristics. See, Russian, like Georgian, has no present tense of the verb to be. Like, I'm here becomes I here. Technically, it's yes, yes. It means I'm here, but, you know. The result for someone who's not entirely home with Russian is kind of an uneasy sense that, you know, there are gaps in one's prose that ought to be filled. And Stalin often fills them with the series of near synonyms for is, and the one most often being yevlyatsa, appears. And this yevlyatsa thing, it also then steeped into later uh, Soviet historiography. A lot of speeches made by other Soviet authors, but this is the cause, because Stalin really, you know, he wasn't that good with grammar, so he had a lot of people just fixing his grammar mistakes. And yeah, like we mentioned, he only got to speak about the national question because he was Georgian, so, well, if you believe he wrote the speech himself, well, I don't know, why would Stalin do that? He will be much better off just finding people who would do that for him. However, despite the fact that, you know, Stalin himself wasn't really good at creative writing, he was successful at what he wrote. He kind of found it hard to work with words, but Stalin was not stupid. He recognized his shortcomings and he used them. That's one of the things that he was really good at. He maybe wasn't as good with words as Trotsky was and wasn't very poetic and used a bunch of ghostwriters and, and people who put his ideas into words, but he knew what he could do best. The one quality that he sustains is a kind of simplicity, which makes the writing well-suited to the intellectual and an educational level of his readership. You see, Russia in those days was not remarkable for the high degree of literacy among its population. But this, this whole thing about literacy and what made Stalin's kind of more simplistic writing stock and what made him extremely popular and which just spread this Lenin's cult, yeah, well, let's talk about the Bolshevik literacy campaign for now. Yes, it is necessary. See, in a bad literacy campaign, I'd like to bring you two viewpoints in mind here. First of all, is going to be by Alexander Pavlovich Shimansky. And that's a more of a positive view, and then we'll get a negative view either, and I'll comment on both of those things. You see, uh, according to Shumansky, a lot of scholars point to the Tsarist legacy of educational expansion and proclaim that the Soviet achievements in literacy and educational were kind of unexceptional. And their reasoning stems from their belief in that the Soviets merely benefited from the building momentum toward a comprehensive public school system, which was, you know, set in motion during the Tsarist era. They contend that uh, had Tsarist rule continued, near-universal literacy and schooling would have occurred anyway, and maybe even sooner. In declaring that, Shumansky writes, Soviet achievements in literacy and primary educational are exceptional, these scholars fail to consider that education was either widespread nor comprehensive before 1917. And they also ignore huge differences between the governments of the Tsarist and Soviet eras. The role of education at each, and whose interests the government is protecting. Quote, It is important to remember that while many children in the Russian Empire's cities were receiving an education, children in the rural areas, especially peasants, were far less likely to attend school during the Tsarist era. Only a small percentage of peasant children, most of them from the more prosperous families like, uh, you know, Lenin's, even completed primary school. A 1911 study of Zemstvo schools in 34 provinces of Russia found that only one-third of the students graduated, with the rest dropping out of school only after two or three years. 
Yeah, given that in many cases only the prosperous peasants or nobility received more than a few years of education in the Russian Empire, the Soviet achievement of universal education for all citizens, regardless of their class, is even more remarkable. For those kids who were lucky enough to actually get an education in Tsarist times, the subjects covered were in no way comprehensive. Schools back then were good at teaching the ability to read, but not how to learn through reading. Many educated peasants still spoke in local dialects instead of standardized Russian, and that can hardly be considered literacy, for students lacked even the basic ability to write what they heard or could only read by sounding the letters. Math classes consisted of the four basic functions, simple and compound numbers, and fractions. When we compare these achievements of the Soviet near-universal literacy, which enables students to reach, like, far beyond just the ability to read text aloud, and to reach high achievements in advanced math and the sciences, Soviet accomplishments are certainly exceptional. Soviet leaders always considered education to be an extremely important indicator of progress. They believed that literacy, in particular, proved the new regime a modern state and protector of the proletariat, or workers. A literate and educated general populace was needed in order to modernize and industrialize the country. Important goals for the Soviet state. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that educational advances were an important part of state planning and spurred Soviet economic and technological progress. At the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, and uh, these are the claims of Mr. Shimansky, at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution, 37.9% of the male population above 7 years old were literate, and only 12.5% of the female population was literate. These low literacy rates dropped further in the turbulence caused by, you know, massive civil war, famines, epidemics, and complete chaos that followed from it, you know, remember, the cannibalism and all the bad things. And yeah, these same factors also caused a decrease in the general educational level in the country. See, and this is where the important part actually relevant to this episode starts. Beginning in 1922, when Stalin is already on the rise, Soviet authorities started implementing a far-reaching, large-scale educational program with the goals of universal education and eliminating illiteracy among adults. By 1938, the government had established a network of four-year elementary schools covering the Soviet Union and seven-year schools for children in urban areas. In addition, whereas before 1914 there were almost no kindergartens in Russia, the Soviets rapidly developed preschool education, including kindergarten, as part of their national program. Education at these schools was traditional and strict discipline was enforced. Soviet schools were especially strong in mathematics and the hard sciences, but also stressed language, literature and history, a big change from the Tsarist schools which only taught the fundamentals of reading and arithmetic. In an attempt to help illiterate adults, the Bolsheviks launched an ambitious campaign between 1923 and 1927, which is exactly where we are at the show, called, quote, <clears throat> Down with the Illiteracy of Society, which depended on volunteers. Members of the Bolshevik youth organization, the Komsomol, were especially enthusiast participants. And they had campaign posters saying, Literacy is the path to communism, and, you know, used the classical symbol of Pegasus, the winged horse, as a distributor of knowledge. The general census of December 1926 underscored the successes of the campaign. For the first time in Russian history, the majority of the population could read and write. 65% of the males and 36.7% of females above the age of 7, that was good. By the 1939, 81.1% of Soviet citizens aged 10 and above were literate. And by the 1960s, literacy was common to almost all of Soviet Union's citizens. The most rapid increase occurred in the first 10 years of the revolution, which is remarkable for the Soviet Union, really. And as uh, Shumansky writes, without the shift brought on by the Bolshevik Revolution, which made the education of the masses essential to the government's goals, and ushered in the government protecting the interests of the workers and not just the elites, it would have been impossible to achieve near-universal educational literacy as the Soviets did. Even, like, diehard opponents of the former Soviet Union acknowledge that the Soviet state's universal primary education for all children was a great achievement at the time. So, that's the good part. However, obviously... There is the other side of the coin. 
for what this literacy was used. It had a certain Stalinist twist, at least at Stalin's era. The opposing view, well, it's um, held by modern Stalin critics, obviously, and this one is from Kerry Foley from Georgetown University who had compiled this. And he speaks, on the other hand, that, yeah, everyone here just speaks about the statistics, and statistics truly are exceptional. Then again, everyone gets so caught up in these statistics that they don't look beyond the numbers. And this mistake is kind of crucial, because much more important information lurks behind there. Because, yeah, obviously, Soviet education did profit from the Tsarist educational legacy. The Tsars presided over an educational system that was characterized by high standards, serious academic character, and extremely strict discipline. The period from 1870 to 1914 was a time of remarkable expansion of basic schooling, with the ultimate goal of establishing public schools throughout the empire by 1922. That was the Tsarist plan. In 1872, the Russian government started investigating compulsory primary education and dramatically increased funding for it. In 1908, the government passed legislation on compulsory attendance for primary education. By 1914, three-quarters of all school-aged children were receiving basic education in a 150-160 day school year. School curricula went beyond reading, writing, and arithmetic to actually cover history, geography, natural sciences, and sometimes work in a trade. Tsarist-era students were in school in the last decades before 1917, but how developed were their skills and were they retained? A survey between 1895 and 1900 showed that many former students not only retained their ability to read, but also improved the speed and comprehension of their reading after they completed school. They retained their basic math skills as well, for out of all the skills they learned in school, math skills were like obviously mostly used in everyday life. It's reasonable to think that, even given more time to implement its educational plans, Tsarist Russia would have succeeded in its plan to bring about universal primary education and literacy by the 1920s. The high-esteem, rigorous approach to education held over into the Soviet times. Many of the best pre-revolutionary pedagogical theorists, educators, and scholars remained in Russia after the revolution and imparted their seriousness and discipline to generations of Soviet students. The Soviet government merely brought to fruition educational plans that had actually been conceived and partially implemented in the Tsarist period. Another problem with conceiving of Soviet educational achievements as an exceptional thing is that the statistics used to prove their success, well, <laughs> like I would trust them in face value. You just can't do that. The Soviets were so intent of proving that theirs was a modern progressive state, and again, remember the new Soviet man concept, the fact that everything's better in the USSR, that they had every possible incentive to inflate the statistics of education, well, just as they did with statistics on public health, on industrial output, statistics of everything. And, you know, even if you believe the statistics completely, this educational system was often not as impressive as we guys born here like to suggest. See, Russia's civil war, its revolution, famine, and disorganization after the Soviets came to power resulted in a massive decline in the literacy rate and lowered the educational level. Only in the middle of the 1920s, Stalin's era, did the country actually start to make advances again in these areas. And a lot of historical authorities, even here in Eastern Europe, agree that had the public education system started by Alexander II in the 1860s would have been able to progress naturally, Russia would have had universal education by the 1930s, even without this literacy campaign. Again, this was just argued against for, but hey, have to show the other side as well. The educational system also developed slowly as the result of the effects of World War II, with the pre-war educational levels actually only restored in 1950. Even those figures were not too impressive. In 1939, about one-third of urban children and only 10% of rural children were in 8-10 to 10 year schools. Yeah, they made these primary schools of 4 years and 7 years, but it's just not enough. And this fact highlights kind of an important point about Soviet education. 
The inequality between urban and rural areas highly diminishes the impressiveness of the Soviet's achievements in relation to Tsarist era figures. While the Soviets established many preschools throughout the country, their expansion was held back by the fact that the campaign against illiteracy absorbed much of the resources of the educational authorities. Even with widespread primary schools in the Soviet Union, the quality of education students received at the schools was lacking. Soviet schools emphasized memorization and recitation at the expense of critical thinking and problem-solving. They just had to, and even though later a massive amount of truly genius scientists would pop up, this was a time of problems. And the reason for this is better understood when, well, Soviet authorities at the times, especially Stalin, they saw literacy and education as a means of propaganda, through which its citizens could be molded to meet these new Bolshevik ideals. They became obedient citizens and laborers with the technical skills to help modernize the country. Education had to teach students to follow communist ideology and the directives of the regime, not to question or interpret the content of what the regime was saying to them. Although the Soviets finally achieved near-universal education by the 60s, its students did not learn much. Many Soviet students were barely illiterate, had not mastered basic math skills, and did not have many of the skills they could use in labor. Factory managers in universities complained about the younger generation's lack of preparation for higher education in the workforce. Yeah, that also actually happened, because uh, these complaints happened from the fact that there was a lot of contentment in, in like Soviet factories with the fact that incompetence happened, and you can read that in satire magazines from the era. And yeah, even in the case of basic literacy, after several years of expensive and expansive campaigns, the census of 1926 showed only that 51% of Soviet citizens over age of 10 were literate. Compared to the 45% literacy rate in 1917, the expensive and resource-laden literacy campaign and the increasing numbers of children in school only marginally increased the literacy rate. Why then did the campaign fail even though it had so many resources? Well, first, in order to increase the overall literacy rate, it was necessary to lower the illiteracy rate in the countryside. This proved far harder than increasing urban literacy, which was already at 64% for males and 42% for females by 1897. The poor control that the Bolsheviks had over the countryside before Stalin's collectivization programs began in the late 1920s complicated this task. Their lack of authority in rural areas left many schools outside the control of central educational authorities. The illiteracy campaign supporters in the countryside, mainly rural teachers, had many other burdens, you know, low wages, little time. The People's Commissariat of Enlightenment, the national organ in teacher education, had barely any funding. The increase in basic literacy before World War II was noteworthy, but it took too long to be considered exceptional. So yeah, while the official statistics show that the Soviet educational system was just crazy good, especially in the early eras, you need to look behind the numbers. Because Tsarists had their plan. And this whole thing comes down to whether or not you believe that having a plan and then following up with the plan using the Zarist era teachers is a good thing or a bad thing, and how impressive all this was? Well, you here make the conclusions. What I'm here to say, and why this whole thing was really important, is that obviously Stalin wasn't really good at writing. But it didn't matter, because those who were reading his works were these young folks from this massive, massive illiteracy campaign thing, who, like I said, they weren't trained in critical reasoning. They could read and write, but they couldn't reflect upon it. They couldn't really think about it, at least not in this period. So Stalin basically posted out readings, all these massive, massive writings in his books of ideology, and he let young communists just go and spread this and teach people how to read, so that they could read Stalin. And they liked what they read, because Stalin spoke in simplistic words and simplistic messages, and he was very loud and clear, and at this point his ghostwriters were, like, perfecting this all simple words, great meanings, and, and large ideas, just pushing through it with emotions thing. So that worked. 
that really worked and made sure that Stalin just increased in popularity. Besides, if you add to this, uh, as I read to you in the beginning, this whole speech about the cult of Lenin that started in his memorial congress, it's easy to see how this uh, worked similarly to the Reformation, because, you know, as Dan Carlin put it in his episode, Prophets of Doom, the printed word is kind of like an intellectual contagion. People who weren't able to read before, now they could, and the first thing they read, and the thing that they could understand the best, was this finely crafted Soviet pro-Stalinist propaganda, who basically made people follow Lenin and, you know, later on, build a massive trust and love for Stalin at the same time. These were the first words that they read, and they weren't ready to think about them critically, they weren't trained to think about that. Besides, the nice schoolteacher who has just taught you how to read and write, especially in the adult peasant populations, she was a fanatical communist too. So hey, this is how the propaganda machine really started to spread at the time. As the Yugoslavian democratic socialist and well-known dissident, even though he was fighting for the communists in um, the partisan movement, Milovan Jilash has put it about this whole education campaign, quote... Stalin understood his Russians extremely well and made full use of their need to be given a simple, easily digestible fare. He reduced Marxism and Leninism to the mental level of worthy but somewhat slow-written bureaucrats who didn't have the time or curiosity to be bothered with the obscure dialectics of the Founding Fathers. But, false or not, Stalin satisfied a need not only in the Soviet party but throughout the international communism as well, where his dull, scholastic, but easily assimilated compendium became very influential. Stalin's role as a theorist has been much underrated. The skill with which he linked Marxist-Leninist theory to power and turned it into a guide for action had great appeal and gave him enormous strength. Because Stalin, he knew how to use the system that he created. Also, by this point, Stalin had all the reasons to exploit the system which he had created. He was totally confident about everything. At this point, it was clear that he was on his way to utter complete power. He obviously didn't care and had no illusions about how mighty his so-called rivals were. Trotsky was a loud-mouthed windbag. Zinoviev just did his thing and never asked any questions, and Kamenya was a moderate, and moderates, you know, were very quickly losing popularity because of all the new communists entering the party. Now, this is interesting, because as for the rank and file, the standard members of the party, this now underwent a transformation which put it firmly behind Stalin, because Stalin was the number one writer, like we just mentioned before, and this is where literally reform really played in. To commemorate Lenin's death, the party administered 200,000 new members. They joined at a time when party membership did rather more than satisfy the sense of political idealism. Not only did it protect one from the more extravagant attentions of Cheka, but it also put one on the rung of that ladder of ever-increasing privilege and that did so well in the Soviet system. You know, if you were a party member, your life was much better. As a party member, you had some protection and priority, which made it incompatibly harder for you to be kicked around. In times of unemployment, party members were the last to be laid off and the first to be rehired. Once in the party, the world's your oyster, essentially. And of course, of course, uh, the newcomers were carefully sifted by Stalin's machine, since, as Molotov put it at the time, quote, the development of the party in the future will undoubtedly be based on this Lenin enrollment. He probably did not understand even the full importance of what he was saying, for the Lenin enrollment might better be termed the <clears throat> quote-unquote Stalin generation, so-called the thing upon which he will found his old personal rule. As you know, later on, the chief victims of his mighty purges would be the old Bolsheviks, and everyone who joined before the 1924. They would be replaced by these latecomers, quite ignorant, unsophisticated, and massive fanatics and readers of Stalin. You know, Stalin, who as general secretary organized their literacy campaign and gave him a lot of Stalin to read, which was simple. 
Those guys obviously had never seen Lenin, or more importantly, Trotsky, speaking at all. As you see, in the early days in Moscow and in Petersburg, everyone was giving loud and crazy speeches. Stalin couldn't do that. Stalin could write, and he could use a systematic approach to the problem, which he did. Well, turns out, you can only give a speech in one city, and it's impressive. If you put an impressive speech on paper, and people who have just learned how to read can read it, but they can't comprehend it, then much more simple things work better. And yeah, the enrollment of all these people who had just learned to read and had become fanatical communists really changed the nature of the party. By the end of 1925, it numbered slightly over 1 million members and candidates, only 8,500 of whom had joined before 1917. And now, more than ever, it was a party of the young, the somewhat naive, and the fucking ambitious. It was crazy. Uh, the expansion was accompanied, obviously, by a modest purge. Basically, the machine got rid of anyone suspected of Trotsky or opposition sympathies. Which is kind of nice, because then everyone knew that dissent was bad, and the new members learned that shooting things was pretty cool. Hello everybody, Anita here. I stopped by to thank everyone for supporting us on Patreon. I am happy to report that soon we will have saved up enough for Kristaps to buy a new mic and therefore improve your listening experience. Please remember to also visit our website www.theeasternborder.lv and join our communities on Twitter at eastern underscore border as well as on Facebook. Social networks are a great way for you to bring your insight to the show and also stay updated on all the latest info regarding the Eastern Border and its creators. See you online! A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In this period, also, the death of Lenin happened, and the whole thing with the 13th Congress and Lenin's so-called testament. I have covered that whole affair in a previous episode, so I won't be speaking about that now. I'm just gonna do a small recap that the Central Committee voted by 30 to 10 to read the will to heads of delegations only, and to withhold it from the Congress at large. Trotsky remained silent throughout the discussion, although together with Radek, he did at least vote against the motion. <laughs> this was one of his mistakes. He missed another opportunity allowing Stalin to escape. And yeah, as it happened, party delegates to the Congress discovered the contents of the will soon enough. Numerous copies were circulated and read before a document was banned. A curious fate for the last words of Lenin, really. However, the Congress was, again, another triumph of Stalin. It was agreed to expand the Central Committee by adding 13 full members and 17 candidates, all Stalin's men. 
while Rada closed his place. In contrast, Stalin's associate Kaganovich joined the Central Committee, the Secretariat, and the Org Bureau, increasing Stalin's hold over the apparatus even further. The Congress basically was anonymous and very peaceful and calm, as if the various supposition of recent months had never even existed. The thing that the Soviet party really was afraid of at the time was a dissent in the party, and the fear of losing power was still at large. But yeah, at this point, after the 13th Congress, Stalin has once again turned the will of Lenin onto his head, and he was now in the best position ever, and he knew it. For the first time, he made kind of a modest move against Zinoviev and Kamenev, criticizing both guys for ideological errors. In each case, he just took casual remarks from the original context to suggest that the views that they had apparently professed were in some respects incorrect. He also replaced the secretary of Kamenev's Moscow organization by one of his own men. In the meantime, the rest of the guys were still fighting against Trotsky, and now the triumvirate attacked his position as commissar of war by appointing Frunze, one of his chief opponents, as his deputy. Frunze effectively took over the office, while Voroshilov replaced one of Trotsky's closest supporters as commander of the Moscow military district. And a series of other promotions favored the old 1st Cavalry Army at the expense of Trotsky's adherents. By the summer of 1924, Trotsky had lost his hold over both the military and political sections of the army. Trotsky, well, counterattacked by doing what he could best, write and make speeches, but the time for speeches was no longer over. In the autumn, Trotsky published his Lessons of October, which analyzed the nature of the revolution, and he castigated Zinoviev and Kamenev and Stalin, suggested that Lenin and Trotsky together were the architects of victory. There kind of ensued a polemic conducted in the language of complete outrage, because each of these guys, both Kamenev and Zinoviev and of course Stalin, just refuted and criticized Trotsky and steadily reduced the part that he allegedly played in the revolution. And this was now that Stalin began revising history. He invented a, quote, a practical center for organizational direction of the insurrection, in which he had played a leading role in which there was no room for Trotsky. He also managed to unearth some letters Trotsky had written in 1917 containing fierce denunciations of Lenin. The triumvirate led on a well-orchestrated concert of protest at the Trotsky's charges, which included howls of indignation from party cells at home and, well, everywhere. In Moscow, there were even electric light displays advertising various replies to Trotsky. And this is where Trotsky fails. Trotsky made no counters. As the historian Paul Schaeffer put it, quote, In publishing his Lessons of October, Trotsky made the disastrous mistake of misjudging the effectiveness of a verbal attack upon an enemy equipped with all the elements of real power. Were he not a sick man, he would know that after such an error, he could win out only by fighting on it in spite of his defeat, by coming out in the open with his own proposals. The only alternative would be a long, long silence. But choosing neither combat nor silence, Trotsky wrote a letter to the Central Committee, which reiterated his submission to party discipline. The reason for his refusal to defend himself against the monstrous charges laid against them, he just, again, is afraid of the party unity. And he offered to resign from his last truly lost, effective post at the time, the presidency of the Revolutionary War Council. Now, Zinoviev wanted him expelled from the Politburo and even the party, but Stalin opposed any further sanctions, and the Central Committee contended itself with its resignation. Stalin was definitely not playing cat and mouse with Trotsky this time. About to engage in the delicate change of horses in midstream, he was content to let Zinoviev occupy a position of extreme hostility, while he would appear this moderating influence, this nice Uncle Joe. Because he always examined everything and, you know, before he even committed something to any extreme course of action, really. And now, in marketed contrast with Kamenev and Zinoviev, he continued to read punctuously to <clears throat> Comrade Trotsky, radiating correctness and moderation, and making his two colleagues seem rude, in contrast, really. 
Now, with Trotsky no longer any kind of threat, the triumvirate naturally exploded. And Stalin made a kind of a cute move against both Zinoviev and Kamenev. Now, uh, basically, these are guys who control the party organizations of, you know, Leningrad and Moscow, respectively. In the summer of 1924, the secretary of the Moscow committee, Zelensky, had been replaced by Uglanov. Zinoviev had pushed his candidacy against Stalin's man, Kaganovich. Stalin agreed grudgingly to Glyanov's appointment. He and Molotov then proceeded to win Glyanov over, as they did. Bajanov, the secretary, recalls coming upon the three of them in private sessions, at which point he understood that Stalin was quietly taking over Moscow. Working, to use a favorite expression of his covert operations, Tichoy Sapoy, by a silent sap. Glyanov made a deal with Stalin, while ostensibly continued to support Kamenev and Zinoviev. However, at the end of 1925, which we are now, he fully transferred his allegiance and his dual delegation to Stalin, thereby completely destroying Kamenev's power base and openly opposing Zinoviev. So, now the fight was on between Stalin and Zinoviev, and between Moscow and Leningrad too. As Stalin had not been yet able to penetrate the Leningrad machine, and this is perhaps for this moment then we should start to date why Stalin didn't like Leningrad that much. Because the northern capital represented kind of more openless, sophistication, kind of western culture, it was always considered, and even still, Petersburg is the cultural capital of Russia. While Moscow kind of stood for those values of conservative, I guess, conservative Bolshevism, and, you know, introverted old Muscovy, which Stalin liked so much. Stalin was this careful thinker with a pipe who didn't take rash actions, rather manipulated the systems. As Stalin moved against Zinoviev and Kamenev, Stalin, who had at that point not yet packed the Politburo and still had to work for a majority, he started a new alliance with Bukharin. Bukharin was a thinking man's Bolshevik and had the support of party's younger intellectuals, notably those in the Institute of Red Professors, a Bolshevik establishment for the training of university teachers. Bukharin also had incredibly strong ties with the Moscow organization, another reason for Stalin to move close to him in the summer of 1925. Having previously believed that socialism must be brought about by radical and coercive methods, Bukharin had moved to the right on the issues of industry, agriculture, and the role of state of control. He really believed in the NEP, which we, again, have spoken about previously, and he felt that this is the way the socialism lay through this peasantry. Many of his colleagues found his views ideologically unsound, and they were wary against the re-emergence of capitalism, and basically considered him to be morally bankrupt and, you know, a false communism. That was weird, because even his new ally, Stalin, obviously felt that Bukharin had gone too far, when in 1925 he echoed Guzot's famous injunction to the French voters, who had just brought him to power, by telling the Soviet president to, quote, get rich. But yeah, Stalin was not the only guy who tried to do something at this point. 1925 saw a futile attempt to form some sort of an anti-Stalin opposition in the Communist Party. The co-opposition consisted of Zinoviev, obviously, Kamenev, obviously, Krupskaya, and Sokolingov, who at that point was a commissar of finance and a firm believer in NEP, this mixed economy thingy. And obviously they held wildly differing views in matters of policy. Krupskaya was, she took strong exceptions to recent manifestations of the pro-peasant policy, maintaining the orthodox Leninist view of peasants as class enemies of the workers. That was a crazy thing, because if you remember, Lenin hated kulaks who stole his cow. That was one of the more famous quotations, but that actually happened, and peasants could kind of support themselves, while the workers couldn't. Workers were the true proletariat in pure open Leninism. And yeah, these guys kind of formed uh, the opposition, and they were to make a stand at the 14th Party Congress, which already had been postponed several times. The delay was obviously what Stalin did, and he had used it to win over, like, random, wavering, undecided people. The Congress was finally scheduled to assemble in December, and then everything started to fall apart for the opposition. 
Zinoviev lost the first battle when the Politburo decided that Stalin would make the initial major speech. Zinoviev insisted on referring the issue to the Central Committee, and there he lost his second battle again. Stalin's groundwork, which he did constantly and all the time, because Stalin was a meticulous preparer, really had paid off, and the committee endorsed the decision. At the Congress, Zinoviev and Kamenev expected to have the support of Leningrad, Moscow, and possibly the Ukraine, all other organizations being in the hands of Stalin by this point, as he truly ran the machine as general secretary. Political rivalries had been expressed obliquely in squabbles by the proper interpretation of the recent past, as of doctrinal differences and issues such as, you know, supporting the peasantry, and although this Congress had its share of ideological squabble, it differed from past assemblies in two respects. For the first time, both Zinoviev and Kamenev made personal attacks about Stalin, while Kamenev maintained that the country was on the brink of a dictatorship. Hey, guess what happens next? Quote, <clears throat> We are against creating the theory of a leader. We are against making a leader. We are against having the Secretariat combine both politics and organization. We cannot regard as normal a situation in which the Secretariat decides policy in advance. I have become convinced that Comrade Stalin cannot perform the function of uniting the Bolshevik general staff. The 14th Congress also differed from the earlier ones by the virtue of how brutal and unforgiving it was. The reason arguments of the opposition were countered with like jeers and catcalls and insults, well, because everything had packed with Stalin's delegates. Yeah, and every one of the Stalin's delegates which he had admitted to the party, taught them how to read, but not how to think properly, they just shouted the speakers down. For the first time, the techniques the Stalin had developed in Georgia, seeking victory through packed audiences and clacks and like rigged votes, had become the political house style of the nation. The style should have been imposed so successfully was the measure of like Stalin's total control over his party. He won through human resources, through packing everything up within this whole system. And Stalin could understand the nature of the party, he understand the nature of its new members. The new Bolshevik, neither an intellectual or the old type of Petersburg worker with like decades of political experience where only the Tsar mattered. The newcomers had more ambition than political sophistication or idealism for that matter. The idealists had supplied the cannon fodder of the civil war and, you know, obviously had died out. The new men would rather shout an opponent down than argue with him, just as Lenin had once shouted down the Marxist deviationists of Anarius and Mach. Stalin did not win over his supporters simply by appealing to the thug in them. He revealed kind of this curious kind of charisma, and again, completely opposing to Trotsky, not, not this leader prophet with wide-eyed idealism and inspirational appeal, but that of holder of a higher office who didn't allow the importance to go to his head and who still had time for little people. We read about this in the episode of 1939, foreshadowing the events to come, but this is where Stalin masters it. Stalin always spoke with the common people, and, and he tried to instill this through regular workers and through the caterers. By presenting himself as a simple man, Stalin won considerable popularity among the newcomers, made insecure by the spectacle of intellectual and, yeah, frequently Jewish auditory displays like Trotsky and stuff. The Kremlin photographer Petrov was making a fuss about arranging the group for a group photo. This is where Nikita Khrushchev first saw Stalin. And Stalin stated, quote, Comrade Petrov loves to order people around, but that's forbidden here now. No one can order anyone else to come around again. And news of such behavior kind of traveled really fast and did wonders for the reputation of Stalin as a leader. Stalin knew how to present himself as a humble man, a pipe-smoking embodiment of common sense, so to speak. He had a lot of self-control. He was a brutal man with, like, almost no morals, but he could never allow his craving for powers and total hatred to, like, all of his rivals that could even be seen in public. In the meantime, while Stalin was doing this and, you know, perfecting his appeal to the masses thing, Stalin answered Kamenev's charge of leaderism in a speech of if you, if, you, if you want to study hypocrisy in public life, then that's one of those you should read, really. Now, as the speech uh, Stalin gives is extremely long, 
I'm just gonna read two chapters from it. It concerns how Stalin essentially turns these Kamenev's words about his leaderism onto blaming Zinoviev, because Kamenev's power base is essentially destroyed anyway. So now it's time to bring Zinoviev down to become sole ruler. So Stalin instead turns everything around with another pretty genius thing. Just two chapters from the Stalin speech of the 14th Congress. Chapter 9. Concerning the history of the disagreements. Permit me now to pass to the history of our own internal struggle within the majority of the Central Committee. What did our disaccord start from? It started from the question, what is to be done with Trotsky? That was at the end of 1924. The group of Leninist comrades at first proposed that Trotsky be expelled from the party. Here I have in mind the period of discussion in 1924. The Leningrad Guberny Party Committee passed a resolution that Trotsky be expelled from the party. We, that is the majority of the Central Committee, did not agree with this. And, you know, as usual in these speeches, I have uh, background noises written in here in this uh, transition too. It comes from Marxist.org site, by the way. Mm, voices. Quite right. We had some struggle with the Leningrad comrades and persuaded them to delete the point about expulsion from their resolution. Shortly after this, when the plenum of the Central Committee met and Leningrad comrades together with Kamenev demanded Trotsky's immediate expulsion from the political bureau, we also disagreed with this proposal of the opposition. We obtained the majority of the Central Committee and restricted ourselves to removing Trotsky from the post of People's Commissariat of Military and Naval Affairs. We disagreed with Zinoviev and Kamenev because we knew that the policy of amputation was fraught with great dangers to the party. And the method of amputation, the method of bloodletting, and they demanded blood, was dangerous, infectious. Today you amputate one limb, tomorrow another, the day after tomorrow a third. What will we have left in the party? This first clash within the majority of the, on the Central Committee was the expression of the fundamental difference between us on the questions of organizational policy in the party. The second question that caused disagreements among us was that connected with Sarki's speech against Bukharin. That was at the 21st Leningrad Conference in January 1925. Sarkis at the time accused Bukharin of syndicalism. Here's what he said, quote, We have read in the Moscow Pravda Bukharin's article on worker and village correspondence. The views that Bukharin develops have no surprise in the organization, but one might say that such views, with their way, are syndicalist, un-Bolshevik, anti-party, are held even by a number of responsible comrades. I repeat, not in the Leningrad organization, Zinoviev's one, but in others. Those views treat the independence and extraterritoriality of various mass public organizations of workers and peasants in relation to the Communist Party. And here Stalin continues. That speech was firstly a fundamental mistake on Sarkis' part, for Bukharin was absolutely right of the question of the worker and village correspondent movement. Secondly, it was not without the encouragement of the leaders of the Leningrad organization, a gross violation of the elementary rules of comradely discussion of a question. Needless to say, this circumstance was bound to worsen relations with the Central Committee. The matter ended with Sarkis' open admission of mistake in the press. This incident showed that open admission of a mistake is the best way of avoiding an open discussion and of eliminating a disagreement privately. The third question was that of the Leningrad Young Communist League. There are members of Gubernia party committees here, and they probably remember that the political bureau adopted a decision relating to the Leningrad Gubernia Committee of the Youth Communist League, which had tried to convene in Leningrad almost an all-Russian conference of the Young Communist League without the knowledge and consent of the Central Committee of the Youth League. With the decision of the Central Committee of the Bolshevik Party, you are familiar. We could not permit the existence, parallel with the Central Committee of the Young Communist League, of another center competing with and opposing the first. We, as Bolsheviks, could not permit the existence of two centers. This is why the Central Committee considered it necessary to take measures to infuse fresh blood into the Central Committee of the Youth League, which had tolerated the separatism, and to remove Safarov from the post of leader of the Leningrad Gubernia Committee of the Young Communist League. The incidents show that the Leningrad comrades have a tendency to convert the Leningrad organization into a center of struggle against the Central Committee. 
The fourth question was the question raised by Zinoviev of organizing a Leningrad a special magazine to be called Bolshevik, the editorial board of which consists of Zinoviev, Safarov, Vardin, Sarkis, and Tarhanov. We did not agree with this, and said that such a magazine, running parallel with the Moscow Bolshevik, would inevitably become the organ of a group, a factional organ of the opposition, that such a step was dangerous and would undermine the unity of the party. In other words, we prohibited the publication of that magazine. Now attempts are being made to frighten us with the word prohibition. But that is nonsense, comrades. We are not liberals. For us, the interests of the party stand above formal democracy. Yes, we prohibited the publication of a factional organ, and we shall prohibit things of that kind in the future. Voices in the background. Quite right, of course. Loud applause. This incident showed that Leningrad leadership wants to segregate itself in a separate group. Next, the question of Bukharin. I have in mind the speech Bukharin delivered in April when he let slip the phrase, enrich yourselves. Two days later, the April conference of her party opened. It was I who, in the conference presidium, in the presence of Sokolonikov, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Kalinin, stated that the slogan, enrich yourselves, was not our slogan. I do not remember Bukharin making any rejoinder to that protest. When Comrade Larin asked for the floor of the conference to speak against Bukharin, I think it was Zinoviev, who then demanded that no speeches be permitted against Bukharin. However, after that, Comrade Krupskaya sent an article against Bukharin, demanding that it be published. Bukharin, of course, gave tit for tat, and in his turn wrote an article against Comrade Krupskaya. The majority of the Central Committee decided not to publish any discussion articles, not open a discussion, and to call on Bukharin to state in the press that the slogan, Enrich Yourselves, was a mistake. Mukharin agreed to that, and later did so, on his return from holiday, in an article against Ulyanov. Now, Kamenev and Zinoviev, they think they can frighten somebody with a prohibition bogey, expressing indignation like liberals at our having prohibited the publication of Comrade Krupskaya's article. You will not frighten anybody with that. First, we refrain from publishing not only Comrade Krupskaya's article, but also Bukharin's. Secondly, why not prohibit the publication of Comrade Krupskaya's article if the interests of the party unity demand that of us? In what way is Comrade Krupskaya different from every other responsible comrade? Perhaps you think that the interests of individual comrades should be placed above the interests of the party and its unity? Are not the comrades of the opposition aware that, for us Bolsheviks, formal democracy is an empty shell, but the real interests of the party are everything? Long applause. So in this fragment from the chapter 9, he just smashes Zinoviev and obviously states that, hey, there's something wrong with the Leningrad group. He didn't like Leningrad at all, so something is wrong there, and those guys, well, they just, you know, cause a ruckus where none is needed. What are they? Are they trying to split the party? Well, there's a lot of other things which he just criticizes Zinoviev for about in this chapter, but again, even this chapter turns out to be a bit long. The chapter 10, the opposition's platform, however, just ends up with um, the most amazing thing ever, where he finally crashes down on Zinoviev and Kamenev. Quote, let us now pass to the platform advanced by Zinoviev and Kamenev, Sokolnikov and Lashevich. It's time to say something about the opposition's platform. It's rather an original one. Many speeches of different kinds have been delivered here by the opposition. Kamenev said one thing, he pulled in one direction. Zinoviev said another thing, he pulled in another direction. Lashevich a third, Sokolnikov a fourth. But in spite of the diversity, all were agreed on one thing. On what were they agreed? What indeed is their platform? Their platform is reform of the Secretariat of the Central Committee. The only thing they have in common, and that completely unites them, is the question of the Secretariat. This is strange and ridiculous, but it is a fact. This question has a history. In 1923, after the 12th Congress, the people who gathered in the cave, laughter uh, in the background, drew up a platform for the abolition of the political bureau and for politicizing the Secretariat, i.e. for transforming the Secretariat into a political and organizational directing body to consist of Zinoviev, Trotsky, and Stalin. What was the idea behind that platform? What did it mean? It meant leading the party without Kalinin, without Molotov. Nothing came of that platform, not only because it was unprincipled at the time, but also because without the comrades I have mentioned, it is impossible to lead the party at the present time. 
To a question sent to me in writing from the depths of Kislodovsk, I answer in the negative, stating that if the comrades were to insist, I was willing to clear out without a fuss, without a discussion, open or concealed, and without demanding guarantees for the rights of the minority. Laughter. That was, so to speak, the first stage. And now it appears the second stage has been ushered in opposite to the first. Now they are depending not the polarization, but the technicalization of the secretariat. Not the abolition of the political bureau, but full powers for it. Well, if the transformation of the secretariat in the simple technical apparatus is really convenient for Kamenev, perhaps we ought to agree to it. I'm afraid, however, that the party will not agree to it. A voice in the background, quite right. Whether the technical secretariat would prepare, whether it would be capable of preparing the questions it would have to prepare for both for organizing bureau and for the political bureau, I have my doubts. But when they talk about a political bureau with full powers, such platform deserves to be made into a laughing stock. Hasn't the political bureau full powers? Are not the secretariat and the organizing bureau subordinate to the political bureau? And what about the plenum of the central committee? Why does not our opposition speak about the plenum of the central committee? Is it thinking of giving the political bureau fuller powers than those possessed by the plenum? No, no, no. The opposition is positively unlucky with its platform, or platforms, regarding the secretariat. As you can clearly see here, well, Stalin essentially takes everything that we have learned about him so far in these series and just plumps it on the head of Zinoviev instantly. And everyone laughs around it, because they're full with Stalin's people, as, well, General Secretary Uncle Joe is always on the friendly side of things. The opposition was outvoted at the Congress, and Stalin tightened his grip. Kamenev was reduced to a candidate member of the Politburo, which was increased to nine full members with the addition of Molotov, Kalinin, and Voroshilov, giving Stalin a guaranteed majority, while Uglanov got his reward for delivering Moscow by becoming a candidate member. The Central Committee was further expanded and packed with more of Stalin's men, and a final mopping-up operation was completed when Stalin set a team to Leningrad to purge a local organization of Zinoviev supporters, a task they accomplished really easily. Henceforth, the organization was to be headed by Stalin's loyal and long-standing associate, Kirov. The 14th Congress marks the moment when Stalin gained complete control over the party's upper echelons, the Central Committee and the Politburo. It also marks the complete end of internal politics within the party. From now on, every appointment, every promotion, everything would be controlled by Stalin's machine. And no one, no one was permitted to dissent from his policies. All that was required of party members was an unquestioning support of the general line. Kamenev really didn't have to be clairvoyant born the party of this leaderism in December 1925. It was very soon clear what kind of leader Stalin was, now that power was in his hands. By the spring of 1926, we find in diplomatic dispatches describing him as the most powerful man in the land, effectively in charge of the government, although it was conceded that he still had some rivals. He had himself informally recognized the principle of dictatorship, thereby revealing a remarkable clarity of his vision. At a dinner to celebrate Kirov's takeover of Leningrad, there apparently was a discussion about collective leadership, which was felt by the group to be a good thing. Stalin did not agree. According to those present, he uh, stated, quote, Do not forget we are living in Russia, the land of the Tsars. The Russians like to have one man standing at the head of the state. Of course, this man should carry all the will of the collectives. Yeah, that's how Stalin actually really thinks about this situation. Stalin just, he finally got his old personality loose. He became a bit weird. Stalin's rude and bullying, rough personality matched the mood of the whole land there. As a Swedish diplomat reported from Leningrad, quote, the entire country seemed haunted by fear, notably fear of the Cheka, which kept bringing to light real or imaginary conspiracies. Now, obviously, there are a bunch of historians who would like to maintain that the terror only began in the 30s. This is a popular view that 20s were a time of prosperity and wishful thinking and niceness, but, um, but no. There was fear and there was lawlessness. 
There were uh, rundown cities that were terrorized by crime and street violence. The greatest thing being uh, the bisprizorni, the unsupervised gangs of basically homeless children left over from the war who depended upon their gang survival instincts to actually manage something. They were regularly rounded up by Cheka, who would shoot some out of hand and, you know, send others to mm, institutions. These contained a high percentage of alcoholics and cocaine users among their uh, inmates, some of whom were doing up to five grams a day, supporting their usual addiction by uh, begging, stealing and murdering. Glimpses of street life in the mid-twenties, later considered the period of early prosperity, give some indication of this whole atmosphere of the age. Author Solonovich writes in his book Escape from Russia in Chains, quote, <clears throat> A vagrant boy snatched a loaf of bread from a woman's hands and took it to his heels. The woman raised a hue and cry. The boy was tripped, fell bruised and bleeding to the cobbles, and was kicked in the spine and ribs by the woman who had joined the chase. Some student in the crowd ultimately felled the woman with a heavy blow to her face. But this is not all. Prone on the ground, bleeding and beaten, smarting under his injuries and protecting himself as best he could, the boy continued to tear the loaf with hungry teeth and simply bolted the dirty and bloodstained chunks of bread. He finished the loaf on the way to police station. Further on, the calm of the workers' city of Leningrad was suddenly broken. About 15 young workers had raped an unfortunate girl on a piece of waste ground. The party had an epidemic of collective rapes to investigate. Books like those of Alexandra Kolontai propagated an oversimplified theory of free love. An infantile variety of materialism reduced sexual need to its strictly animal connotations. You'll make love as you drink a glass of water to relieve yourself. The accused 15 had the faces of gutter kids, with primitive brutality as their salient feature. They offered confessions and knelt one another with no inhibitions about going into the details. What was more natural than sex on waste sites? And what if she disliked mating with four, five, or six? She would have got just as pregnant and diseased if it had been only one. And if she did mind, probably it was because she had prejudices. So yeah. After talking of the new culture and, quote, our wonderful Soviet morals, the magistrate condemned five of the rapists to death. Since rape was not a capital offense, he convinced them of banditry instead. So, to see crime and fear and everything, well, started to get a bit more crazier, even in the late 20s. But Stalin really did not care that much about economical policies, as he viewed peasants to be politically unreliable. Peasants would have to wait. Political power always first. And even though he could gain total control, he still kind of had to deal with all of his former rivals. But I suppose we'll get to that in the next episode, because honestly, I don't like the idea of turning all of this into a massive uh, three-hour-long show, after all. Here we can see the truly beginnings of hardcore Stalinism. And it will only get worse as time passes on. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and see you next time. And if you have any questions, write to us to our email and visit our website and everything. So, uh, have fun. And до свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.